Well, friends, as we continue through this hour of worship, we're about to go to God's word. And in the season after Easter, it's a reminder that Jesus didn't just live those remarkable 33 years with three years of public ministry and then go to the cross and that's it. But after his death, his burial, his resurrection, he appeared to over 500 people over the course of 40 days. And in this sermon series, we're taking a look at some of those post-resurrection encounters that Jesus had because those encounters, they changed everything for the people that Jesus encountered. Now, what's remarkable about each of these is that every single encounter is different. And what a great reminder that God is so expansive and personal at the same time that God, through Christ, the risen Lord, doesn't appear to the same people the same ways in some sort of formulaic approach. And I believe that as we take a look at how, for example, last week, Jesus had his encounter with Mary. And in the following weeks, as Jesus has his encounter with Thomas and the disciples in the upper room and uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And today, as we take a look at how Jesus appeared to Peter, we're gonna see really an expansive multifaceted picture of Jesus. And in many ways, each of these post-resurrection experiences enlarges our view, not only of Jesus, but it also enlarges our view of each of these New Testament characters. And it's my hope that also, as we go through this together, as we study God's Word, led by the Holy Spirit, that it would also grow your understanding of yourself through God's eyes, but also expand your view of the brothers and sisters in Christ in your own life. Now, this is key. Uh, one of the favorite uh, illustrations that I use in pastoral counseling, especially in premarital counseling, is an illustration that comes from the life of C.S. Lewis. You know, C.S. Lewis, who lived in England in the, the 20th century, he wrote many, many books. Uh, Mere Christianity, uh, The Four Loves. He wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, perhaps his most famous series of all. And if you don't know, he was friends with J.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And not only C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, but there was a third friend by the name of Charles. I always forget his last name, but, but Charles and the two of them, they were deep and close friends. They refer to themselves as the Inklings, and they would meet up together at the pub, and they would talk theology, they would talk life, they would talk politics, they would talk uh, what they were writing. And one day, Charles died, and the three now became two. And C.S. Lewis, he writes this story in his book, The Four Loves, where he, you know, on one hand, was grieving the loss of his friend, but also had this thought, well... Without Charles around the table at the pub, I'm going to have more time with Tolkien. More of Tolkien to myself. I'm going to get to know him in a deeper way, a richer way. We're going to draw closer than we ever have before. But in actual fact, the opposite happened, according to C.S. Lewis. He found that in the weeks and months and years after Charles's death, he actually got less of Tolkien. He writes about it this way. In the four loves, he says this, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. 
By myself, I, C.S. Lewis, am not large enough to call the whole person, in this case Tolkien, into activity. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see J.R.'s reaction to the type of jokes that Charles would always tell. Far from having more of J.R., now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. And I've experienced this in my own life. My wife and I were coming up on 16 years of marriage. In all those months and years, over a decade and a half together, we've gotten to know each other uh, in in a deeper way, a richer way, a more intimate way. And yet when we had kids, though I shared the time with my wife, with now my newborn son Judah, I actually, I didn't get less of Erica. I experienced more of Erica. For the first time in my life, I experienced her as a mom. There were sides of her personality that I never knew. She never knew existed. It was a deeper, richer experience of my spouse in sharing relationships with others. And as Judah grew older, I got to know him from the moment he was born. I've known him his entire life. And yet the moment he became a big brother, now sharing that relationship with his younger brother, Baird. I actually, I've gotten to know Judah in a, in a deeper, in a richer way. Ironically, the more that we share one another, the more we get. In C.S. Lewis, he makes the point that this is an echo, this is an image of heaven, of the kingdom of God. He goes on in The Four Loves and he says this, in this friendship exists a glorious Nearness by resemblance, catch this, to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition which each has of God. For every soul, seeing God in his or her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to the rest of us. And so again, just to reiterate where we started, as we see... uh, Jesus' encounter with Mary, Jesus' encounter with Peter today, and Thomas, and so on, we're going to have a richer view of Jesus as we see Jesus through their eyes. It'll enlarge our view of Jesus, enlarge our view of these New Testament characters, enlarge our view of ourselves, but also enlarge our view of our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, in actual fact, we can grow in our relationship with Jesus by being in deep relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can grow in our knowledge of our brothers and sisters in Christ as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus. It is this beautiful, iterative, deepening process as we grow deeper in fellowship and deeper in discipleship with our Lord. So today we're getting to Peter, one of my favorite, favorite post resurrection encounters. We're just going to dive right in. If you have your Bibles, let's go to John 21, and I'll read from verse 1 all the way through verse 6, but we'll pick up after that as we dive in. So this is the New Revised Standard Version. Here are these words uh, written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John. Chapter 21 of John, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. 
Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. This, my friends, includes the reading of God's word. And as we say every week, thanks be to God. Now, just to set some things up right here, go back to verse one. Uh, before this encounter, it says something that I want us to catch. In verse two, it says, gather there together where Simon Peter, and, and it lists all the names. And then the sentence ends. It doesn't say that they were gathered together so that. It doesn't say that they were gathered together and then they went and did this. It just simply says that they were gathered together. Something has happened over the course of the three years that even though Jesus, in their mind's eye, has now died and there's rumors perhaps of his resurrection, they have not yet had an encounter yet and they are simply together. And I want you to catch this. Peter says this in verse three, I am going fishing and his friends, his brothers in Christ, they don't respond and say, you know what, I want to go fishing too. They don't say, that. that's a good idea, let's get some food. They don't say, you know, I had the same idea. How interesting. They say this, we will go with you. More important than going fishing, the disciples simply want to be with Peter. You see, they, they're grieving. All the hopes that they had placed in Jesus perhaps have been dashed against the rocks. They thought that he was going to overcome perhaps the Roman Empire, and he had just been crucified days earlier. A question for you before we dive into this text. Do you have people in your life that simply just want to be with you and not just do activities with you? Are you the type of person that has people in your life that, that you just want to be with them? Regardless of what the activity is, it is a window into the opportunity that God has invited us into to have deep relationships, deep friendship, deep fellowship. But they go fishing. And now it's so remarkable, I didn't catch this for many years, that this encounter that Jesus has with Peter actually is the mere image of Jesus' first encounter with Peter three years prior. And it's so remarkable. You can read about both of them. Again, this is John 21. And the first encounter we get of Jesus with Peter is found in Luke chapter 5. And almost word for word in Luke 5 and John 21, all the details line up except for one. And that one difference, that one different detail, gives a window into how this encounter changed everything for Peter. In Luke 5, you have Peter and the disciples before they were disciples. These are his brothers. These are his friends. Uh, in Luke 5, they have been fishing all night. John 21 says that they've been fishing all night. Luke 5 says not only have they been fishing all night, but they haven't caught any fish. John 21, all night, no fish. Luke 5, Jesus appears on the shore and says to them, have you caught anything? John 21 says, have you caught anything? Luke 5, they respond and they say no. John 21, you, do you see where this is going? Exact same detail, book ended, mere images. 
Jesus in Luke 5 says, cast your net on the other side. Go out in a deeper water, cast your net on the other side. He says the exact same thing in John 21. In Luke 5, they cast the net on the other side and they haul in so much fish that it gives the detail that the nets begin to rip. In John 21, same thing, they cast on the other side, they've caught so many fish that their nets begin to rip. How remarkable the level of detail and similarity between these two. But listen to this. In Luke 5, Peter has a very, I'll call it an extreme response. His response isn't, wow, look at all the fish. His response isn't, thank you, Jesus. You showed us the fishing hole. His response recorded in Luke 5, is that he falls to his knees and he says, get away from me, for I am a sinner. You see, in that moment, Peter encountered one whom perhaps he couldn't wrap his mind around, but in relationship, he knew that he was nothing. He was broken. He was fractured. He was sinful. In the presence of greatness, he was humbled. And so remarkable, Jesus says in Luke 5, do not fear. Right from the get-go, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you should be humbled. Yeah, you should be uh, crushed. You, you should tell me to get, no, he says, do not fear. From now on, you will be a fisher of men. In that moment, Jesus drew near. Luke 5 was in the presence of his brokenness and called him not just to follow Jesus, but gave him a mission that was part and parcel with what he had done his whole life, his whole adult life, formerly a fisherman of fish, now a fisherman of men. But again, that extreme encounter, he, he, the extreme reaction, he, he is humbled and Jesus restores him in that moment. Now listen to what happens in Luke or in John chapter 21. The very opposite happens. John 21 uh, verse 7. All those details are the same and this is where the details depart. The only difference in those two stories is found here. Verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, this is John speaking, it is the Lord. Listen to this. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the sea. He starts swimming to Jesus. He rushes to him. What perhaps is going on in his mind that causes him to jump out of the boat and run to Jesus where in the very beginning he wants to be pushed away from Jesus? Two opposite extreme ends of the spectrum. Something has changed. Something has shifted. I believe that something happened in, in Peter's heart and in his mind where he got it, where he finally embraced Jesus for who Jesus really was. He understood the gospel. He knew he was broken. He knew he was sinful, but he sees Jesus coming to him again, restoring him again, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, giving him 
the abundance of provision in this fish, again, even though he had just denied him three times. We'll get to that detail in a moment before Jesus' death. And it says in verse 8, but the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. Now I want you to catch this. Long before Jesus and Peter have a famous interaction, which we'll get to as it goes through John 21, I believe that that first encounter, it changed everything for Peter. He experienced grace. He experienced love. He experienced Jesus. Again, just like the first time, wanting to draw near. And now you have three years of Jesus' teaching, his miracles, all the personal interactions that Jesus had with Peter, his death, his burial, and now his resurrection. All of it, for some reason, perhaps the Spirit of God enabled Peter to understand. And his, his reaction is that he simply, he wanted to run towards Jesus. And now just to make the point that when we have an encounter with the risen Lord, that the appropriate response is one that is extreme. When we have a real encounter with the real risen Jesus, if we really encounter him, it's not a, oh, well, that's interesting. It's not a, oh, I'll add that to the list of resources that I have in my life. When you have an actual encounter with the risen Lord, you stop dead in your tracks. You come face to face with the holy, with the mighty, with perfect love, perfect peace, perfect power. And when you begin to understand the gospel, that it is not our good deeds that enable us to be in God's presence, but it's because of Christ's perfect deeds that enable us to be in God's presence. We don't draw upon our past or earn our way. We, we claim Christ's past, his perfect record to enable us in God's presence. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin, this is Jesus, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now what's so remarkable is what happens Next, take a look, open those Bibles back up in John 21, verse 9. It says, when they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there. Now, let's just pause for a moment. The, the, the level of detail, not only in this story, but in all the gospel accounts, the level of detail actually is a clue, is a tip, is actually evidence, I believe, that this isn't made up. You know, when you read ancient literature, they never go into this level of detail. They never go to the level of detail that they came around a charcoal fire. Not just a fire, a charcoal fire. They never go into the level of detail that they caught so many fish that the, the nets began to rip. They would never go into the level of detail that they caught 153 fish. This is an eyewitness account, and John, led by the Spirit, wants to give all the details, like in in technicolor for us to see. But if you know much of Peter's story, you know that something else happened around a charcoal fire before Jesus' death. And to understand that, we have to go back in Scripture. I, I preached on this a number of weeks ago. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to go back to, to John 18. It says this in verse 25, after the Lord's Supper, 
After Jesus says, I tell you, all of you will desert me tonight, Peter says to Jesus, though everybody else will desert you, I will not desert you. <laughs> he doesn't just say, no, no, not me, Lord. He says, everybody else is going to fail you, but I'm not going to fail you. And then Jesus says to him, before the, the rooster crows tonight, you will deny me three times. And previously, when Peter heard that, he didn't say, well, Lord, help me not do that. He didn't say, give me strength. He didn't say, I don't want to do that. He, he, he didn't say anything like that. He says, no, not me, Lord. Surely not me, Lord. And Jesus says, it is true. We can see in verse 25 of John 18, that scene around another charcoal fire. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself by the fire. They asked him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whom, whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it. And that moment, the cock crowed. That was the second and third denial around the fire. One before that where he says, are you, are you a follower of him? And Peter says, no. So three different times, Peter denies Jesus. In one of the other gospel accounts, I believe it's in Mark, in that moment, Jesus is being led away, now under arrest on the way to his trial, uh, on his way to his beating, on the way to his crucifixion. And he makes eye contact with Peter and Peter sees and he realizes that in his pride, he thought, I could do it in my own strength. I'll never deny Jesus. I can't do it. And yet he did. And it says that he went off weeping, filled with sorrow. So three times he denies him around a charcoal fire. And in John 21, after the resurrection of Jesus, they find themselves around what? A charcoal fire. This should give us clues to how important the details are that God wants to communicate through Jesus to Peter. In the same setting that you denied me, you could say it this way. Jesus is saying, Peter, I want to restore you. It goes on, verse 9, when they had come ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there, and there was fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I want you to catch this before the famous interaction that we'll get to where Jesus asks Peter the same question three different times. Around a fire, Jesus simply shares a meal with them. I want you to catch this. He doesn't rush right to. Now, let me tell you all the things that you got wrong about me. He doesn't rush to, you, you, all, you, you deserted me? How dare you? He doesn't do that. He comes with the fullness of God, full of grace and truth, as John chapter 1 says, and he embraces them and he shares a meal with them. One of the most intimate things you could do in fellowship with somebody else in the first century and today is to share a meal. 
He has invited them in. And I want you to catch this. This is an encounter that changed everything. That rather than pushing them away, Jesus draws them in. That the more that we look at Jesus, we see in Jesus God in the flesh who embraces you. And the more that we look at Peter and these others, we see they're broken. They haven't measured up. They're not perfect. They haven't done all the things right for then Jesus to say, okay, now you've earned my love. Now you've earned my embrace. No, Jesus continues to embrace them in their brokenness. You know, and that causes me to look at myself. And, you know, sometimes I can, in some ways, be like Peter. I can think I can do it in my own strength. I can say, Jesus, I'll never do that. I see other people fall this way or that way. I can never do that. But the moment I do that, I slip into a self-righteous pride. Uh, I rely on my own strength. I rely on my own faithfulness. Following that trajectory and that path, I can fall into human-made religiosity. And that's not the gospel. In the same way that that leads Peter to to fall short in his own strength and to deny Jesus. When I go down that route and I think that I can handle it myself, I too, I, I deny Jesus. And perhaps many of you who are joining us today, you look back on your life and there are things that, that other people know about you, maybe some things that you are the only one who knows that you have done. Perhaps things that you carry of guilt, maybe of shame. You know, guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. Guilt is uh, I failed. Shame is I am a failure. Perhaps there's things that you carry that have gone beyond your behavior deep into your identity. And if you follow that religiosity route of, okay, I just got to clean myself up. I've just got to do better. I've got to pray harder. I've got to, you know, attend more. I've got to read more scripture. Ultimately, we see here, we're going to fall short again and again and again. But if you see this encounter as an encounter that Jesus wants to have with you today, that despite my failings, despite your failings, that Christ comes to you, to provide for you, to shower you with grace, to shower you with love, to reveal to you the truth that yes, you are broken, but, but Christ has made a way by paying for, by covering over all of your sin. That when you embrace that, that you see that you were loved because simply God loves you, that as the book of Romans says that God demonstrated his love to you in this, that while you were still sinners, while I was still sinner, Christ died for us. It unlocks something in you that I believe causes you to run to Jesus in the same way that Peter ran to Jesus. What a remarkable picture. He's run to him. They're sharing a meal with him. And then Peter turns to Jesus and Jesus asks him three questions. So symbolic, so significant. And you know, all throughout the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever something happens three times, it is something to communicate emphasis. It's something to communicate um, authority. It's something to communicate wholeness and perfection. You see, there's no, there's no exclamation points in the Hebrew or the Greek language. There's no underline or italics or big bold. There's no emojis. And so when you list something three 
different times. It gives a picture of completeness. And so when Peter denies Jesus three times, he's denied him wholly. He's denied him completely. He's denied him perfectly. And now Jesus asks Peter three questions. And I believe through these three questions, he fully restores. He completely restores. He perfectly restores Peter. Not because Peter has earned it, but because Peter has finally come to grips with his brokenness, that Peter's finally come to grips with the gospel, that's not Peter, I measure up, so therefore God loves me. It's though I fall short, you still love me and you use me and you call me. Let's take a look at these three questions, beginning in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we're going to get really detailed here. We're going to go down deep in this. Uh, this is actually the only time of the three times that Jesus asks Peter a question when he adds the phrase, more than these. He asks on three occasions, Jesus, or Peter, uh, son of John, do you love me? He asks that question three times. But this first question he asks and adds on, more than these. Now, it's remarkable as I see this question paired with the moment where previous Jesus' death, previous to his arrest, previous to all that, where Peter says to Jesus, even though everybody else will deny you, even though everybody else will desert you, I won't. It wasn't just, again, to reiterate what I said before, it wasn't just that Peter said, you know, I've got you. I'm going to be faithful. He's saying that I will be more faithful. I will be more consistent. In other words, he's saying, I love you more than all of these. And I believe that in that moment when Jesus asks the question, he's leading Peter's heart and his mind back to that moment. And there is this sense of Jesus not pointing the finger at him. He doesn't say, are you going to deny me again? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, are you going to lie again? He doesn't say that. He says, he gets, he gets right to the heart of it all. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And in that moment, I believe that, that Peter was contrite that he realized that, how could he say that? How could he truly say that I love you more than everybody else loves you when I've just denied you three times and yet he wants to live into that relationship. He wants to live into that love and he says, yes. And Jesus then responds and he says, feed my lambs. He gives him a task, he gives him a mission he gives him a job. Echoes all the way back to the first time that Jesus meets Peter, where he, in his brokenness, says, get away from me. Jesus says, do not fear. From now on, I will make you fishers of men. You see, I believe he is humbled again in this moment, but not wanting to push Jesus away. He is humbled and wants to draw near. That's the beauty of the gospel. When you are so humbled and you realize your brokenness, but your heart and longing wants to be drawn closer to Jesus because you know that he receives you just as you are. He embraces you just as you are because he's already died and paid for your sins. 
He's reconciling you back to Jesus and back to God himself. And so, Peter responds and he says this. A second time, verse 16, a second time he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter responds, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says to him, tend my sheep. A slightly different nuance. The role that he is calling him to isn't just to, to feed his lambs, which is echoes of his teaching ministry to come, but it also says to tend my sheep. It gives a picture of a shepherd. He is an under-shepherd to the great and true shepherd that is Jesus Christ. He's calling him to a ministry of teaching and shepherding, of preaching and pastoring. And then it says in verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you to where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Now, let's get down deeper into this. Okay, of course, in the English language on the surface, you have Jesus asking Peter three different times, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But when you get deeper in the Greek, you actually see that that word love is translated from two different Greek words. You see, there's actually three Greek words. There's eros and uh, phileo and agape. And if you have those Bibles, uh, open them back up. Maybe some of you were taking notes. Maybe you want to get out a pencil and, you know, circle different words here. But when Jesus first asks Peter the question, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He uses the Greek word agape. Do you agape me? And Peter responds and says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And then the second question, Jesus says to Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds and he says, yes, Lord, I phileo you. And the third question, Jesus changes the Greek verb. And he says, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter responds and says, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. Now, a lot of translators, a lot of uh, commentators, a lot of preachers have, have wondered and, and dove down deep into this, wondering, you know, what on earth is going on here? Perhaps some of you, you know, you, 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 I've heard this before and I know exactly what's happening here. Now, there is a view that is shared by some that when Jesus says to Peter, do you agape me? It has been said that agape is an unconditional type of love that is reserved for the way that God loves humanity. It is the, the more perfect love, as it's been said. And phileo, as it's been said, is a lesser form of love. You know, phileo, you can even hear Philadelphia. It is a brotherly or a sisterly love. It's a, a love that we might have for one another. And so some people have then made the conclusion and said that here you have Jesus saying, do you unconditionally love me? And Peter's 
He can't say yes, but he can say the lesser, I phileo you. And some preachers and some theologians and some commentators have said that Peter wasn't able to measure up to the type of love that that Jesus was calling Peter to. So Jesus had to lower his standard on that third question and say, Peter, do you phileo me? That somehow Jesus met Peter where he was and he finally was able to say, yes, I, I love you in that way. Now here's where I find that actually very problematic to say that agape is a more perfect form of love and phileo is a, a lower form of love. In fact, there are passages in the New Testament where it says that humanity, apart from God, agaped the darkness. It says that, that sinners love the darkness. And so it can't be that agape is a perfect form of love. Because here you have broken people loving brokenness in what has been defined as a perfect way. There's another passage. This is in John chapter 5 where it says that God the Father phileos the Son. Here you have an exact description of the type of love that God has for God's Son. And the Greek word is phileo. So you can't say that phileo is somehow a lesser version of agape because it's the type of love that, that God has for his son. And interchangeably, in other verses, it says that God agapes the son and God agapes humanity. And so I don't quite buy the idea that somehow uh, agape is better and phileo is worse because we see different usages of those two words. And so you might ask the question, okay, Drew, what does it mean? Now, let me tell you this. I have no idea. And maybe that's surprising to you, but actually for me to give the answer, I have no idea, is actually me doing a lot of study, a lot of prayer, a lot of work, is actually me having an encounter with the risen Lord that leads me to a place of humility and not pride to say, I don't know. I don't know the motivations of why Jesus would change the Greek word. I have no idea. And it leads me to a place of humility. It leads me to a place of yearning and saying, Jesus, reveal this to me. I don't yet know, but I want to know. And I want to know on this side of eternity, but perhaps it's not going to be on this side of eternity. Maybe it's not going to be until I'm in your presence. And the very fact that I come to this place after 22 years of following Jesus, 22 years of studying this passage, of, of seeing different usages of agape and phileo all throughout Scripture, that I get to this place and I, and I am humbled. I'm in a place that I believe that Jesus led Peter to in this moment. Empty hands of faith saying, Jesus, I need you. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the strength. I'm not going to love you perfectly. Uh, I'm not going to follow you perfectly. And yet still you call me in. And yet still you give me your spirit. And yet still you, you equip me for a purpose. 
And so somehow throughout this whole process, I move more and more from the Peter that was first by the fire, puffed up with pride, I won't do it, and then does it, to by the fire, entering into a relationship, using human language that I know, knowing that God is mysterious and yet meets me where I am. What's so remarkable is it says later on that he was speaking to the manner of death that, that Peter would eventually have. You know, I've traveled to Rome and I've actually been to the place allegedly where, where Peter was killed. And church history records it that when Peter finally goes to his death, which by the way, before his uh, uh, crucifixion, Peter says to Jesus after, I, I, I won't desert you, I won't deny you. He says though, even if I die, I won't deny you. He didn't do it by the fire back then, but he has been restored now that at the end of Peter's life, fully embraced by God through Jesus, fully understanding the gospel, fully understanding his brokenness, and yet the perfect love of Jesus drawing him in, when he goes to his death, he goes to a crucifixion. And history says that Peter then responds in that moment and says, I am not worthy to be killed in the same manner as my Lord. In that moment, he doesn't deny Jesus. He worships Jesus so much that he says that if I die the same way that he does, I don't deserve that noble of a death. Absolute trust, absolute faith. He knew, he fully understood that death didn't have the final word, that this was just gonna be a temporary moment that would be the foreshadow, the doorway through which he would step into the presence of God in his resurrected body, in the new heavens and the new earth. And so what did they do? They crucified him upside down. This remarkable encounter that Jesus had with Peter changed everything. And to end with this, you know, another fascinating part about Peter's life is the middle of uh, Jesus' ministry. It's found in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, it says this, let me read. We're going back in time now. I just want to conclude with this. In verse 15, uh, Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And immediately after that, in verse 21, Jesus begins to say that he's gonna be killed. Immediately after Jesus saying to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Immediately after that, Peter says, no, Jesus, you can't go to your death. And, and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And this remarkable moment of Jesus revealing to him this amazing truth on this rock, I will build my church. But immediately afterwards, uh, Peter trying to get in the way of how Jesus was going to do it. I want to speak to that just quickly. You see, I grew up uh, going to church, but I went to Catholic middle school and high school. And I was taught at an early age that when Jesus said to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, uh, I was told that Petros uh, meant rock, 
and that Jesus was saying on this rock, on Peter, I will build my church. And I was taught growing up in Catholic school that uh, on Peter, he would be the first leader of the church and there would be this lineage through all the popes that would be the, the head of the church, the foundation of the church. But when you dig deeper, that is not so. You see, Petros is a masculine name. And Jesus says, and Petros, masculine, on this Petra, I will build my church. Petra is a feminine word for rock. What's going on here? Jesus is not saying, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. He's saying, no, on this rock, which was synonymous in the first century for a foundational truth. On this foundational truth, I will build my church. What's the foundational truth? The confession that Jesus is Messiah, that he is Lord. Every metaphor in the New Testament of the church isn't built around the reality of Peter. It's built around the reality of Jesus. Peter finally understood that after his resurrection. It changed everything in his life. He ordered his life around Jesus rather than asking Jesus to order his life around him. My prayer, my hope is that God would move us, transform us, that through the power of the Spirit, Christ would be our rock, that we would confess with our mouth, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my Savior. Even in my brokenness, you come, you invite me in. And that Jesus would call each of us to the work that he calls each of us to. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you come to us in our brokenness, that you embrace us, that you love us, that you continually restore us through your love and your grace. May we be changed like you changed Peter, now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.